1: Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Will Davies. We'll be talking about his new book, Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. As always, you can listen to the pod on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. And you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter, the handle is at PolTheoryOther. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating it on iTunes. Before we get to today's interview, just a couple of things about the show. So as regular listeners will know, uh, the pod has a Patreon page where you can donate to support the show. As of today's episode, patrons who give upwards of $3 a month will get extended versions of each episode, as well as some other benefits which you can find on the Patreon page, which you'll find at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. The show is currently about a third of the way to being sustainable as a weekly show so please do consider supporting it if you've been finding it useful and and interesting the show has really been a bit of an experiment and uh, one of the things i've uh, learned in the course of 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 this experiment is that doing all the recording sound editing and preparing for the show uh, just isn't really feasible on top of a full-time job Um, and so the pod will now be available every two weeks rather than every week Hopefully this is just a temporary situation so once the show reaches around 130 supporters that should mean that I'll be able to shift back to the show appearing every week. Currently the show has just under 60 supporters so hopefully it won't be too long until we get there. Will Davies is reader in Political Economy at Goldsmiths. He's the author of The Happiness Industry, The Limits of Neoliberalism and his latest book out this month from Jonathan Cape which is titled Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. So, Will, you start the book with this discussion of an event that happened in November of last year um, where police were called to Oxford Circus uh, tube station for an apparently terrorist related incident. There had been reports of, of shots being fired and and in the ensuing panic, uh, there was a crush in the station. Um, but subsequently, it turned out that nobody had been injured and, and nothing obviously untoward had occurred. Why did you choose to open the book with that example? And and what do you think it tells us about the era that we're currently living through?
0: Well, I think what I
1: was intrigued about with
0: that was um, that, first of all, it was clearly a a state of of people acting in a way that was, um, you could say, uh, instinctive, emotional, um, not in accordance with facts. Um, But what I think I was partly trying to explore by looking at this incident, because I mean, the, you know, the, the, the incident in question, I mean, most of your listeners probably will remember it, but it was in late November um, of, of 2017. And there was this kind of ghost uh, event in a way that people began to think that there was a terror attack going on in Oxford Circus um and there was um it was generated these huge sort of swarms of, of crowd movement that people started to kind of run very quickly in various directions and everybody believed that the whole era is under attack um there was people storming into selfridge's armed police all over the place uh, the pop star oli murs tweeted and he has 8 million followers saying fuck everyone get out of selfridge's now there's gunshots and there was just this sort of um like sense of um impending panic that was taking over the crowd. Um, And then it turned out and it took about 45 minutes that actually, there was no terror attack. And I think what that what 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 interested me about that was was various things. One was, um, in some ways, it was a kind of an example of what people have been calling post truth. Um, But on the other hand, nobody could say that any of the people involved in that were behaving sort of, Irrationally, or or they were, it wasn't as if they were kind of you know any, anyone could sympathise with 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 what was going on there. So it wasn't these people were sort of stupid, or that these people were kind of not interested in facts. Part of the point I was trying to get at with that was that first of all, when we are in a situation where uh, of 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 some kind of what you might call a kind of real time. Um, Sense of anxiety and of and of and of fear. Um, how one behaves is really a matter of, of of instinct as much as anything else, and of social cues and so on. But part of the uh, there were multiple things going on there because w- one of the interesting things that 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 distinguished the event was that thanks to the way media works nowadays there was a huge audience for that across the country, and probably across the world, because there were various people with phones, there were various TV um, uh, cameras arrived within that uh, period of time, it was being reported and live blogged on the BBC and the Guardian and the Daily Mail even tweeted, I mean, they got got it completely wrong about, you know, claiming that a lorry had rammed into some pedestrians and this sort of thing, They, they sort of misinterpreted some tweet or something. Now all of this was going on. And then um, there was no terrorism, uh, and it took uh, uh, around about forty-five minutes, and then some time after that before anybody began to establish what had actually happened. And what I think this does illuminate is that part of the problem that we face, and part of the threat to to, to, to truth in certain ways, and there's been a lot of um, discussion over the last. or three years in the context of rising populism about post truth and the uh, threat that people like Donald Trump and, 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 and populists pose to to reason and to facts and so on. But one of the things that I was trying to sort of what I thought was interesting about this was that firstly, you know, we 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 mustn't blame sort of individuals for um, acting in according to certain types of social cues. So we can't sort of beat up on people for being sort of you know not for for being irrational because there is actually something entirely rational about behaving in that way. If you are in that situation, it is a survival instinct. It is actually a sort of fairly kind of important part of uh, of 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 human biology, if you like, that people do flee situations where they think their life is in danger. Um, but The difference between living in a state of kind of real time reactivity and living in a state or or in a state of kind of impulsive, um, instinctive uh, action and living according to facts is partly a question of of the delay that it takes for facts to be assembled. Um, And I think the one thing that I think that 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 demonstrates is that. Uh, you know, a society that uh, is going to and a politics that is going to uh, have greater respect for facts than the one we have at the moment also has to be one that is able to slow down certain processes of media um, and to somehow create some of the to somehow sort of uh, intervene in these forces of 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 of, 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 of social virality. I suppose um, not, maybe not in that precise type of situation. But I think what I think it illuminates is that something that is large in our politics, uh, more broadly, which is uh, the ways in which um, uh, impressions and and, and sensations are kind of triggered in a in a viral and crowd like fashion, in ways that is not about trying to kind of criticise the masses for being stupid and saying they shouldn't be involved in politics or something like that. But in a sense, if you're going to have mass democracy in which people participate and people uh, can, can, can behave in a, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a calmer, less impulsive fashion, you've also got to have a different structure of media and different structures of power to facilitate that.
1: So in terms of the trajectory of this developing post-truth world, um, at the start of the book, you say that the modern world was founded on, on two key distinctions um, between mind and body and, and war and peace and that we've been in a sort of a long process of gradual erosion of those distinctions over the last hundred years or so. Um, Could you explain how those distinctions first arose and what you think is the cause of that erosion that you're describing? What I argue in the book
0: is that the modern world, uh, and particularly the liberal political order, was founded on two key binaries that I think are familiar to most people who uh, have read some history of political thought and philosophy, but I think are worth kind of mapping out. uh, Nevertheless, the first is between war and peace that uh, is really, I think, the kind of key uh, foundation of the of the uh, work of Thomas Hobbes in in Leviathan, in which for Hobbes, the uh, condition of human beings, uh, if they were in what he calls the state of nature, would be one of where they would suffer from uh, an innate suspicion of one another, because they would be unable to know what was going on in the minds of, of of other people. And so even if everybody was very virtuous, and everybody had wanted to live in a in a happy uh, communal society, nevertheless, th- the inability to know what other people were thinking and intending would make people quite reasonably become suspicious of, uh, of their behaviour and potentially take up forms of uh, weaponry and want to defend themselves and potentially um, uh, 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 actually, um, preempt some kind of violence by by initiating it, um, and in a way, just thinking back to that issue about the kind of Oxford Circus um, uh, stampede, I think that you know you know that that wasn't kind of quite a sort of Hobbesian situation, but nevertheless, I think what it what it demonstrates and one of the reasons I think it was interesting to me is that it you know that I think what we get glimpses of at the moment. Uh, and, and you could see this in something like the claim that you know if, if there was a second Brexit referendum that there'd be civil unrest. You know, this is a sort of mm. th- there's a feeling at the moment that the the, the 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 kind of veneer of civil society has become kind of thinner in some ways, and that that kind of state of nature that Hobbes was was warning against is is, is a little bit closer than it would have been um, sort of ten years ago or so.
1: So that situation in Oxford Circus it would uh, would reflect a declining belief in the power of the state to protect us as well.
0: Well, I mean, clearly that is it's precisely what the purpose of, of 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 the kind of terror attacks that Europe has had over recent years is to is mm. to demonstrate the fact that people are not as safe as they as, as states assure them that they are, um, and to play on fear and to generate fear. And to undermine the possibility of, uh, of, 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 in some ways, of, of the of the modern state to deliver on that Hobbesian function, which is to say, don't worry, we're going to eradicate all violence from civil society, give it all all the powers of violence to us, and that way you can trust one another. That's the kind of Hobbesian gambit. And what happens? And I think that what what's particularly effective in its own way with things like vehicle ramming attacks and so on is to show is to say that we don't actually even need to organize or to have any money in order to disrupt this, um, this, this this ideal, we can actually just disrupt it with, with, with no real planning or with no real infrastructure organization whatsoever, which is the same as how in some ways, a you know, a, a coordinated troll attack or something like that, or information war, as it's, as it's sometimes called in relation to you know, the, the strategies of, of the Russian government is, I mean, part, part of how that works, and part of how that's so effective, is it shows that the Hobbesian gambit of eliminating violence from society, really is, is it works when it comes to kind of, you know, it can just about you can work with 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 organized enemies, it can it can it can um, lock up criminals, it can uh, uh, focus on particular threats and so on. But where people are completely disorganized and have very little power, um, the possibility for the or the sense that violence could arise from all sorts of corners, uh, become start to pervade the general atmosphere of civil society. And clearly what had happened with that Oxford Circus stampede was it wouldn't have happened in that way, were it not for the fact that on some unconscious level, people are aware that European cities have experienced various types of um, uh, totally kind of random attacks over the last um, uh, 10 years or so 10 or 15 years. Um, and that that clearly does um, it, it influence the uh, the emotional uh, uh, state of 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 urban life in certain ways. I think that that can't be denied. That's not to, that's not to sort of try and amplify it, but I think that, that 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 is there. And in that sense, I think that you know something like a, a, a terror attack, whether imagined or not, is a threat to the possibility that, or the or the core function of of, of the of of, of, of the uh, of what the Hobbesian idea of the state offers. And I mean Hobbes himself, and I you know I quote Hobbes in the book saying that the nature of war does not exist in actual fighting, but in the known disposition to do so. So that if you are in a situation where you think that violence is a possibility then you are in a situation of violence in some way that's sort of you know if you think that someone that, 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 that people might have intentions to attack you then you are already in a state of of, of, of some kind of war of some kind um, because ultimately the problem that Hobbes is trying to solve is is really a kind of one of of, of, of collective psychology really which is um, the, the the problem of, of not knowing what other people have in mind um, so that is a one of the key kind of founding um, binaries of, of 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 the modern political era is is, is the one that Hobbes establishes in sixteen fifty one in Leviathan of, in, in which the state um, uh, eliminates violence from society and creates a, a clear distinction between states of war and states of peace um and war obviously persists. I mean, war, Hobbes wasn't trying to get rid of war. I mean, there was still war of states invading other countries. But there is a kind of symbolic difference between war, which involves a declaration of war, uh, combatants wearing certain um, costumes, um, a, a clearly Designated set of uh, objectives for a war and, and 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 targets of of, of military action, um, and that becomes separated over the second half of the of the 17th century from from civilian uses of of the state, such as a police force and a prison service or whatever. it might be. I mean, that didn't come until later, but um, but the, the the civil functions of the state and the the military functions of the state become
1: split. Um, I mean, that that erosion between a state of war and a, and a state of peace, it, it's also a two sided process, right? It's it's uh, it's terrorists on, on planes with box cutters, but it's also uh, the war on terror, right? Sure.
0: No, no, I mean, that's right. I mean, I think so. So I mean, I didn't actually get onto that in terms of how is this this started to dissolve. I mean, so there I mean, I'm arguing that the, that these 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 classical modern binaries have actually been dissolving for for a long time, and and, and really, mm. uh, I mean, I, I as I put it in the book for for I sort of say over a hundred years, because I think there's a kind of moment in the late nineteenth century, in particular, where. Um, and there's a, the, 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 well, in particular way, we're talking about war, the development of what would become called total war in the 20th century means that wars are no longer fought between military uh, forces exclusively, but increasingly come to target civilian infrastructure, economic infrastructure, the measurement of GDP during Second World War was, was, was precisely to try and um, Uh, establish the was out of recognition that that the war was being fought as a uh, a, a, a between uh, economic capacities as much as anything else and um, uh, aerial warfare and and bombing has always since its origins um, in the early 20th century has always been put there partly to try and terrify civilian populations and states began to try and measure popular morale during the Second World War precisely because things like the Blitz were Um, aimed partly at demoralizing the public. Uh, So governments wanted to try and kind of establish, you know, how, how much how much resilience and and, and solidarity was there in society. So the states take an increasing interest in the, the 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 emotional makeup and the the commitment and the enthusiasm of their of their civilian population, um, well, over a long period of time. But um, but but it's that become the, the the sense that war is something that is only fought between militaries um, has been gradually dissolving for 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 a long time. But I think what has clearly changed in the context of the war on terror, um, and increasingly as people talk about cyber war and so on over the last twenty years, is that the very technical and, and, and the, the practical nature of war, the, the, the sources of and the, the strategies of war have become extremely difficult to specify. And this, exactly how war differs from civilian functions of the state becomes harder and harder to, to, to identify. You take something like drone warfare, I mean, drone, drone strikes, which of course, were a, a major um, uh, feature of the Obama's foreign policy. I mean, technically speaking, that apart from the strange feature of the fact that the the, the person who, who who carries them out is sitting in a office in um, uh, in, in Nevada um, while the drone is on the other side of the world. But apart from that, there's something very strange about them in that. You know, they involve they're they're closer to sort of assassinations in a way, um, and they 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 have a kind of some of the features of policing, some of the features of war, and some of the features of targeted assassinations because they involve watching people for long periods of time, um, amassing evidence that they are the terrorists that they believe to be, and then um, assassinating them. And that is really a kind of very that is not how war has traditionally been fought. And it's not clear. I mean, it's it's closer to a to a form of of of, of intelligence gathering and um and of and of and of uh, and of policing. In a, in a, but but with this ex- with an execution at the
1: end of it, and uh, and it need not happen in the context of two states being at war with each other, right?
0: No, no, not at all. I mean, that's the thing. So, the, the, in some ways, the, the, the that crucial building block of the what's often called the Westphalian state, because it was the the model of the state that came out of um, of, of of the Thirty Years' War in the with the Peace of Westphalia in sixteen forty eight, which is of a single sovereign space, which where a state has complete monopoly of legitimate violence within it. Um, and these things kind of sit alongside each other and they kind of only kind of run into each other in some kind of traditionally declared war. I mean, that has been a, a naive vision of of national sovereignty for a, for a very long time. But I think it's it's now been in, in many ways um, uh, abandoned, particularly in contexts such as the war on terror or something like that.
1: So in addition to the distinction between war and peace, you also talk about the distinction between mind and body.
0: Um, I mean, as I say early on in the book. What I'm trying to get at with, with this with with this title of nervous states is is both the 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 collapse of the of the war peace distinction and simultaneously the collapse of a mind body distinction and the mind body distinction is is a is a an equally important and famous um, dualism of modern um, philosophy um, which most famously associated with the the, the work of Rene Descartes. Um, uh, in the uh, 1630s. And and Descartes, as any philosophy student should know, um, had the famous um, existential crisis where he became doubtful of the outside world, became doubtful of uh, kept asking questions about well how can I trust my eyes how can I trust my you know physical sensations of the world in fact how do I even know that I exist as a as, as 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 any type of real being at all how do I know this isn't just some kind of trick that a devil is playing on me and that I don't even exist and his answer to the question was well yes the outside world the physical world is something of which I can be certain it's made of this uh, of, of 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 a type of physical matter uh, that um, uh, that my body is made of, but I but I can't be entirely certain of it in the way that I'm uh, the, with the level of, 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 of total kind of ontological certainty that I that I want. Whereas myself, my thinking conscious, uh, reasoning mind is something that I can be 100% sure of because um, because because I'm having these thoughts at all. So that's the famous Cartesian phrase cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Um, and that generates this Ideal of a of of modern subjectivity that runs the whole way through uh, a, a great deal of particularly um, uh, European philosophy over the next um, uh, two hundred years or so, um, uh, which is really what I think liberalism is is predicated on this idea that there is that human beings have this kind of uh, metaphysical. Um, self, uh, or ego, which is uh, reasoning, which has autonomy, um, and which it becomes, you know, in the work of 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 liberals over the from the late 18th century onwards, a a possessor of rights of certain kinds, uh, and becomes recognised by law in the in the work of 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 people like uh, Immanuel Kant, and then latterly in the work of people like Habermas and others. But it's very important for that for that for that liberal ideal of a of an autonomous reasoning self that it that it that it, it exists separately from 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 its from its physical body, and I think that what I'm in terms of the, the you know, in, in, in tandem with this kind of slow dissolution of of, of the war peace distinction, you get really, I think, I mean, the I think a key moment is during the kind of 1870s or so, which is the you get the birth of, um, of of modern psychology, with the work of Wilhelm Wundt, psychiatry in M, the work of Emil Krepelin, psychoanalysis in the work of Sigmund Freud, and so on, which is really seeking to understand all the ways in which the what we call our minds are actually um, constantly being invaded and and, and disrupted by um, nervous impulses by our physical states. Um, Often, there are quite strongly gendered um, aspects to to some of these claims in in the work of Freud and others that that um, that I mean, Freud famously was studied women largely, and the whole notion of hysteria is a which Freud was so interested in was a was a very gendered one because it was this notion that women's minds are affected by their bodies in 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 particular ways. And um, but I mean, this was the beginning of a of of the breakdown really of or the, the the kind of dissolution of of the of the Cartesian idea of of a self that is kind of independent of the body. But what I think is has 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 sort of accelerated this hugely over the last 20 years or so is is the is the rise of or the, the the kind of mainstreaming, I think, of of neurosciences that have have meant that in areas such as mental health and so on, and I've written a bit about this in my previous book, the happiness industry. We we increasingly reach for neurochemical, physiological explanations of of, of why we are as we are, why we experience life as we do, why we why we take choices as we do. In the case of things like you know nudges and so on, we we no longer think of. Of, of freedom and of and of choice and of of, of decision making as things that are kind of somehow sort of separate from our from our physiological and, and 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 neurochemical makeup and in that sense at the same time that that we've seen that that war peace uh, binary kind of fall apart we've seen a kind of rapid loss of of credibility for the idea of a of the modern subject really and I think that so uh, I use that as the starting point for trying to interrogate our times. In this, this, to this, this I, I introduce this concept of, of the nervous state um, to try and uh, understand what this means, both politically, but also on a, uh, on a on a on a on a more personal and, and subjective level um, that that, uh, that um, generates a, a sense of not knowing ultimately. And I think what what is common to both of these things because what what both these these these, these um, developments do in, in together is to make the definition of violence harder and harder to establish and the sources of violence harder and harder to establish so if you take a, you know, take the thorniest debates of our of our times around things like uh, uh, freedom of speech and um, you know whether 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 speech can be violence. Um, now, people will have different political views on that. Um, and Uh, we we all have different positions on that. But I think that before we even get into those, the very fact that we can no longer clearly identify what is a space of uh, peaceful civil interaction. And what is what is a a type of violence is is demonstrative of the fact that in some ways, the liberal project has 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 kind of died in some way because in order for it to work, it has to be possible to be able to say, what is violence? What is peace? What is mind? What is body? uh, What is harm? And what is kind of reasoned critique?
1: And um, and 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 to to maintain that project, is it is it also necessary to to relegate feeling to to a sort of subordinate status? Um. I mean the point. The point you make about Freud is interesting, isn't it? You know the fact that he was uh, studying women and that they were the focus of a, of an othering in terms of hysteria as as a disorder understood as being one in which the person is consumed by feeling. Um, and, and clearly, there's a, a similar process of othering going on regarding uh, colonial populations in that era.
0: I mean that that um, I mean undoubtedly. I, I mean over the course of of. Are probably, you know, far longer than of modernity, but I'm only looking at the, the, the modern world in the book, um, there has always been a sense that others uh, do not deserve this recognition as having a rational self that is separate from their bodies. Equally, others outside of um, Europe um, did not have the Uh, privilege that Hobbes wanted to bestow upon European populations of having a state whose function was to uh, uphold peace and to uh, uh, separate states of peace from states of war. I mean, colonized people uh, were not recognized as having selves of the sort that Descartes was um, was 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 describing and was was uh, um, building his philosophy upon Um, nor were they uh, nor was 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 the state used as a guarantor of peace. Um, I mean, the distinction between policing and military intervention was never there in in colonized societies. So in some ways, these kind of modern binaries are, are those on which the kind of liberal ideal in European societies was built. But they were not things that either colonized people or in the case of the ideal of the of, of, of the of the um, rational um, Cartesian cogito or subject and so on, that that was not something that women were necessarily um, credited with either so of course there is a there is a was a very important kind of um, uh, uh, gendered and uh, there was a there was a there was a Eurocentricity about this and a and a fellow about this that um, that is that needs to be um, uh, considered carefully but i think that what's interesting right now um and of course you know the, the, the um identity politics uh, i mean can is 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 uh, as vocal uh, in public life at the moment as it's as it's been in my in my own lifetime anyway but um but in addition to to the fact that these claims are, are gaining these these perspectives and these critiques against the um, ideal of the of the rational um, uh, uh, civil liberal political space these critiques have uh, are now being voiced very very loudly um, and uh, and very effectively but in addition to that I think what's happened is that white male um, the populations of, of the white male populations of of the of, of, of liberal capitalist democracies, have also in a sense, I think, given up on the ideal or feel that they have they have not been um, uh, recognized as having forms of the forms of liberal subjectivity that that, that that they, you know, believe that they should have been and in some ways, I think, you know, this is the I think the the, the game is up on all sides, there is no one really who still sort of credits that ideal of, of, of either a liberal subject or a liberal state in, in, in the way that, um, you know, in the way that, that, um, that was true that they still did, I think, as recently as the 1990s.
1: So you wouldn't see, uh, some of Donald Trump's more, um, unthinking opponents as falling into that category. Um, you know, I'm thinking of that very sort of determined militant rationalism that sees its enemies as, as, as just idiots and, and, and nothing more
0: i mean so there, i think what's interesting is that and this is the this is the um i mean this is the kind of dilemma really and this is the, i mean the book my book is full of dilemmas to be quite honest and it's, it's full of quite a few ambivalences about particularly on the question of of of, of science but i mean i think it's I, I, you know i there there are there is the sort of the, the position of a sort of dawkinsite kind of rationalist that basically just says um sort of pull yourself together um, we all perfectly we're all perfectly well aware what is real violence what isn 't violence um it 's perfectly clear that you know who's who 's speaking sense and who isn 't um and but 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 what 's interesting about it is that it ends up becoming its own form of aggression, and as soon as it becomes its own form of aggression the, the the sort of you know in a sense it loses its own argument and the same is true of of a lot of these kind of intellectual dark web people like um you know Stephen Pinker and sam Harris and so on is that is that they've they 've turned Rationalism into its into its own sort of um, form of kind of um, sort of heroic masculinity, as, as as far as they see it, anyway, um, which is precisely kind of demonstrates that it no longer has its its it, its claims kind of universality are kind of lost in some way when, when that happens. Um, now, the the, the 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 greater dilemma is, of course, what to do about the broader scientific establishment, because I think that you know this is this is the great the, the great difficulty of and and there is huge fields of 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 science the study of how to communicate science um how to engage the public with science how to Turn scientific findings into public policy in ways that are credible. How to convince policymakers of the of the reality of things like climate change and that sort of thing. Um, and this is this is this is where things get very get get far trickier. I mean, I think that the sort of polemic polemical kind of defenders of, of reason um, in that kind of Stephen Pinker mode. I mean, in a sense, it's sort of you know it has it has turned it into something. In, I mean, he's not. I mean, he's not he's not, he's not a sort of uh, you know he's not a sort of Jordan Peterson outright kind of figure um, uh, so you have to be kind of fair to him. He's trying, he, he believes he's still upholding kind of the values of the enlightenment and so on. But nevertheless, it becomes a sort of a, it becomes another kind of identity and amongst everything else. And that in itself is a sort of confirmation that, that it no longer has its, that it's claims to kind of, um, it's kind of transcendental claims in, 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 to use the, the Kantian terms are, are no longer, no longer working. Um, but, um, no, I mean I think that the the great dilemma in this situation is that, and we've ended up with this um, absurd dilemma, um, and it, we it, well we shouldn't we shouldn't have to choose. This is the problem. But with, between a kind of a um, in in political terms between a, a between a kind of neoliberal technocracy um, and a sort of impassioned um, form of uh, outrage, uh, where the, the where the impassioned outrage in some ways. I think speaks more truly of something. It speaks more truly of the fact that, as I'm saying, that we can no longer separate the, our feelings, our, our our bodies from our from our minds in in some ways. And I think you know that's that's what, in some ways, Trump is the is the greatest icon of that. He doesn't really know what's going to come out of his mouth. He sort of is a he's like, he's, he's sort of everything seems to seems to come from somewhere inside of him. But you couldn't possibly say that it's from a mind of any kind, particularly. Um, and uh, but equally, I mean, there's a sort of, I mean, there is a kind of confirmation uh, that that actually the the, the 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 liberal ideal of the Leviathan is is no longer as as a sort of uh, as as the sort of deliverer of justice uh, as that which acts on behalf of. Of a, of a of a public and of a or of a, of a people and a and of a civil society as a sort of lost credibility in certain ways. So there's a kind of there's a sort of there's a truth there. I'm not going to go nearly as far as Zizek and say that therefore he should be president, but there is nevertheless a sort of a um, um, there is a there is a, some kind of truth there, which then gets kind of confronted by what is in some ways you know the 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 pinkerization of of, of liberalism on the on the other side, which is that you get the kind of the technocrats of of, of, of um, of the the Remain campaign became and and the Clinton campaign was and so on. And it's a total trap and there's no, you know, for for those on the latter side there's no real way out. But what I think the what what I think is really difficult and this is a great challenge I think for the left right now is we have to the my, my book is my book is um I mean it's trying to understand the roots of 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 some of the what's often called post-truth and the the kind of threats to reason and the, 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 the fact that often kind of impulses and feelings and, and pains and anxieties exert, are exerting more influence over politics today. But nevertheless, the idea of a fact is something that we should work extremely carefully and you and mobilize quite powerfully in defense of because in a sense, a society, a, a modern society that is no longer respectful of a fact is one that uh, I think it's very difficult to 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 see how such that kind of society sustains any form of 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 of, uh, of well whether we you want to call it when progress has become a term that's now associated with kind of some neoliberal technocracy in some ways. But you know I think that the question is how do we rescue some of those achievements from the late seventeenth century um, without sort of allowing those to just simply sort of, you know, there's a, there's a question about how do we still rescue some of those achievements of 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 the 17th century? I I mean, interesting, I mean, well, interesting to me, in a way, I never ended up wanting to write a book in defense of enlightenment in the way that Pinker has, you know, he's got into book enlightenment now, um, I think that the things that need kind of interrogating and defending actually come rather earlier than that, which is the very possibility of being able to make um, being able to make factual relatively consensual claims about the world I know that a lot of people on the left don 't like the idea of consensus they think it's kind of soft and, and weak and liberal and so on but unless it's possible to agree on things that have i mean we 're talking at the moment as the as the the Brett Kavanaugh um, uh, hearings are still going on in 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 the um, in, in the Senate in the United States now I mean the question of what has taken place and how do we establish that it has taken place and how do we uh, create the conditions for people to report Uh, faithfully on what they have witnessed. And for those people to be listened to, this is an absolutely fundamental political value that anyone I think on the the left must must treat just as dearly as anything else. Um, And I think that one of the risks right now is that this is genuinely under threat in certain ways. And I don't think that it will necessarily be the left that will benefit from from that threat. So I think this is something that I think needs to be taken very seriously. And it's too easy to just treat this as some sort of liberal conceit and that oh, you know, it's only you know, that like, this is like people like Sam harris and pinker who care about reason and rationality no we all need to to care deeply about that and I want but to also to understand what are the forces against it and some of the forces against it that i'm discussing in the book are partly those that emanate from from capitalism um societies that uh, you know extreme inequality in society uh, undermines the very possibility of people being able to agree on states of affairs to construct objective views about what is going on in the world um
1: yeah i was i was going to come on to that um it was extremely striking reading in the book where you talk about how the description of the economy that um that comes from prominent politicians and, and the commentariat and economists and so on uh, is just so um, at variance with people's uh, everyday experience. Um, or, or rather, it's, it's not so much that the, the description is false, but rather that it, it may be true, but it's true for a certain sector of the population and it's simply not true for another sector. And that the inability to build consensus is, is based upon that, uh, that bifurcation.
0: Yeah. I mean I think that I mean I've long been interested in the in the history of social sciences and, and, and expertise and of and of knowledge and, and so there's a I I sort of look at um in some ways, you know, the the, the possibility of statistics statistics would I mean have a have a have a bloody and, and often oppressive history, but they also are at the heart of of they they have an emancipatory potential, undoubtedly. And I think, you know, it, you look at the, we wouldn't have the work of, of people like Thomas Piketty and, and, and others, or you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a great deal of classical political economy in, of the sort that that um, generated Karl Marx and, and all sorts of other people along the way, if it weren't for the fact that it was possible to produce Um, uh, to to, to adopt a scientific perspective upon your economy and upon your society. So the ability to have some kind of scientific perspective upon economy and society is absolutely crucial. Um, What I'm what I think, you know, really bothers me, um, and which I write about in the book, is that in the hands of a certain type of technocratic elite, statistics became have become um, a way of kind of saying I'm right and you're wrong and I'm rational and you're 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 ignorant. But very often the statistics that are actually used in order to kind of win arguments in in, in political political situations have, have kind of lost their sort of descriptive validity in certain ways. And a couple of examples I I use in the in the book, I mean, one would be um, uh, GDP, I mean, and and there's been a um, this extraordinary finding of, of that Piketty uh, published a year or two ago that that fifty percent of the American population had had no real income increase since the late nineteen seventies. So you've had a forty-year period where half of the population has had no type of growth. You know they haven't nothing; they, they have been standing still. Um, and this means that why? why and, and equally in the UK, and I mean this has been this was discussed uh, in, in relation to Brexit, but only thanks to Brexit, we never really would have got discussed otherwise. But you know, uh, output per hour in West London is eight times higher than in South Wales. Um, And you've got a situation where since over the period of austerity, uh, wages recovering in, in in London, but actually slumping in, in Yorkshire and Humber. Um, and, um, and these sorts of patterns are present all over Europe in the context of austerity, where you've got certain people whose you know, whose incomes have, have basically just been falling since 2008, and other people who haven't. Um, so why would you carry on? It's an insult to carry on talking about economic growth and GDP, when you've got these forms of these kind of injuries that are being that are going on at a subnational level. Um, another example is is unemployment unemployment is at, a, is, at, is at its lowest level in the UK since the early 1970s. Uh, it's very low in the United States, and it's falling across most of Europe. But a lot in many of these, there were all these more complicated stories going on below the surface. I mean, in the United States, the, the, the labour market has been shrinking for all sorts of reasons to do with illness and addiction and so on. Um, that reduces the number of people who are looking for work because uh, they're just not looking for work and so they show up in the unemployment figures. Um, you get similar stories in you've got this Great problem of underemployment and low productivity employment that has masked the the rise of, of of or the reduction of unemployment in the UK, but masks all these other forms of of difficulty and 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 these struggles and these these sources of of distress. Now, I'm not saying economists don't know that. It's only because economists and statisticians do study that stuff that I know about it. But nevertheless, I think there's a problem with headline indicators that they've that they have turned people against experts and they've turned people against. The the very idea of modern government, because modern government spews out these kind of often quite fatuous claims about things being fine, when actually they're very far from fine. And I think that this, if somebody turns up who says, "Don't listen to all of those experts and those elites and those those people saying that, that, that everything's fine," it might be fine for them, but it's not fine for you. That is obviously the pitch of, of of a Trump or a Brexit or a a Brexiteer or a, or a Salvini or or a you know a Le Pen. And I think that. Um, the, the sort of failure of 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 technocracy to actually sort of you know do carry out forms of social science and 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 to innovate in the realm of their their statistics um, means that the sort of discourses of the state have kind of diverge from the discourses that actually make sense to lots of people, which isn't I'm, I'm not getting into a kind of legitimate concerns, kind of argument, I'm not saying we have to sort of, you know, that that, that people should sort of meet everybody exactly where they are in terms of the the, the, the things that, that they say are bothering them. But you know, we need to see the possibility of having a shared reality as something as, as a political project. And it's a political project that gets undone by various things. It gets undone, of course, by lying media, it gets undone by lying populists, and so on. But it also gets undone by the fact that the, the, the conditions of, of social and economic reality have been pulling in all sorts of different directions, so that people are no longer sharing the same society. So that, the, you know, the, the, I think what I'm what I'm getting at is partly that the nation state is no longer really an obvious unit of economic analysis any longer, because frankly, people in, in London have more in common with with people in New York than they do with somebody actually living sort of, you know, 30 miles to the to the east in in in, in Medway or something like that. And and I think like these these sorts of geographic um, uh, inequalities, and so on, um, uh, are masked by by the kind of rhetoric, and it is rhetoric of, of, of the of the technocrats of the centralized state. And it's even worse, in a way, in, in, in very large um, uh, economic spaces, such as the United States or the European Union, where, where the pronouncements of those kind of at the center of, of, of technocratic government uh, are even more uh, distant from from those uh, uh, more local stories and experiences.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can do so at the Patreon page, which is at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.